Welcome to PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Podcast Series. This podcast is an excerpt from PwC's Tax Reform Readiness Webcast Series, held on August 15, 2018, discussing the mobile workforce in the age of tax reform. The panelists for the webcast were David Nixon, a PwC tax principal and leader of our intercompany design and execution practice, Eileen Mulaney, a PwC tax partner and leader of our global mobility consulting practice, Rohit Sachva, a PwC tax principal who focuses on supply and value chain reorganizations, Blanca Kavari, a PwC tax principal who focuses on transfer pricing issues, and Mike Molly, a PwC partner and leader of our internal audit, compliance, and risk management practice. This excerpt consists of a general discussion among the panelists on converging issues and U.S. tax reform, global mobility in a changing landscape, and the mobile workforce impact on transfer pricing in an M&A context. Have a listen. So to really, you know, set up the, um, the discussion for today, um, in the work that, that I think we've done with our clients, we've seen a number of converging commercial and regulatory issues around the mobility space. Um, you know, massive changes in the ways that our clients are executing their business strategy uh, from a people perspective, uh, but in terms of location and the nature of travel they undertake. Um, and that is you know, coming at exactly the same time that tax authorities have been you know, laser focused on questions of substance and um, uh, you know, granularity, transparency, right? insight into you know, are you doing what you said you were going to do? And now you say you're doing that, let's see the data to help us analyze that, as well as you know, huge pressure at the local country level to maximize you know, compliance, uh, not just around corporate taxes, uh, indirect taxes, but also you know, personal income tax and employment tax obligations. That was you know, complex enough, and into this mix comes US tax reform, um, which is a sort of further disruptive factor that we know that you're all grappling with right now. Um, and so on top of this, there's this additional pressure to think about, you know, is our supply chain structure still, you know, make sense? You know, where is our substance? Um, how are we allocating or charging for, um, you know, workforce, whether, you know, stable or, or, or traveling? So um, we're going to do our best uh, to tackle these converging and complex issues today. So um, maybe... With, with that in mind, I could, I could maybe ask um, Eileen first, you know, given the work you do helping, you know, our clients, you know, design and manage sort of their mobility programs, you know, what's, what's going on out there? What's the landscape? I think at the very beginning is the definition of how organizations view mobility has changed quite dramatically. So in the past, when we talked about a global mobility program, it was really about a long-term assignment, a short-term assignment, and that generally represented about 1% of the company's global employee workforce. So fairly a small population over some of our large clients. What we're seeing now is mobility, the pure definition has changed dramatically, and that's any sort of movement cross a border. 
whether that's state to state, whether that's internationally, whether that's an assignment, a relocation, travel, commuting. So the definition has changed dramatically, and what that's led to is the number of people that are mobile across an organization has changed quite dramatically. So on average, we're seeing about 80% of an organization is mobile. When you start to look to some industry sectors, they're really looking at mobility as part of their basic employee value proposition with the promise of mobility for everyone. So think about that in the old definition of 1% to 80 creates lots of challenges and opportunities for a company to really capitalize on mobility for business requirements, to build succession plans, to build leadership, but also to give employees that mobility experience that they want to. Um, as we start thinking about um, mobility, kind of non-traditional, traditional, that general traditional population used to be at 1%, it's shrinking to about half percent. So how do you kind of reconcile that to 80% of the organization to half a percent? The people that are moving in those traditional assignment ways, um, very, very small percentage, those are the people that you have covered under traditional policies, assignment policies, tax equalization policies, well-defined processes. They're going to another jurisdiction for uh, several years. Kind of easy to track, and that's how programs were set up. When you start to talk about travelers, a very different proposition exists. Many organizations don't have policies in place, don't have true governance models, don't have processes in place. So I think it's really a challenge for organizations today, thinking about what is the new definition of mobility, and then how do they look to meet the requirements for risk and compliance around the organization. Eileen, maybe just a quick follow-up question. So <coughs> 80%, it's a really high number. It's a shockingly very, high number. Shockingly high number, right? <laughs> Um, any initial reactions that you're seeing from your clients in light of tax reform? I mean, are they changing their policies? Are they changing the way they think about this? You know, it's interesting. I think the initial reaction when tax reform came out was, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? Um, I think what companies have kind of settled down is there's a huge cost difference with tax reform to domestic relocation. It's very interesting. For many companies, they had a well-defined mobility strategy for cross-border travel, but not necessarily for domestic mobility. And typically, when there was a need for someone to be in another location, they relocated that person. And often what comes with that is real estate transactions, home purchase, home sale. I think companies are really reevaluating traditional domestic relocation programs with the loss of deductions, with the loss of what's changing from taxable, non-taxable to taxable, the cost of gross up. Do we really need to relocate people? I did an analysis with a client recently, and what they looked at is how many times they move someone permanently on a domestic assignment, domestic relocations, and the average for their executives was seven times per executive. So 14 real estate transactions. I think what we're seeing now is much less domestic relocation, just in pure numbers, huge increase in domestic travel. So that speaks to around the, the risk and compliance areas of state-to-state -state travel. So definitely big numbers. Um, as we think about what are the challenges for organizations, you think about risk and compliance. This is a huge revenue generator, not just for states, but also for governments. So all of these people traveling, coming into their country, even for just a few days, technically are taxable. So what is the process with which companies can track who these people are, what they're actually doing, report income, think about intercompany cross-charges, and actually physically pay the employment taxes. So as we're starting to see governments much more digitized, much more aligned with their immigration authorities, governments are starting to know who's coming in, 
who's going out. You get those questions at the border. We all travel significantly. Mm -hmm. We get these questions all the time. So this is reality. So it's really thinking about what is the process to be compliant from an employment tax perspective for all of these travelers, not top of mind for the traveler. So I think it's, you know, kind of an interesting dynamic that we're seeing now with companies of how to execute on this. If you look to many countries around the world, they're technically day one compliance locations, which means under domestic law, a traveler that comes into that jurisdiction will be taxable from day one. And then companies really thinking about, you know, what is our risk profile are we going to be compliant with the day one approach or are we going to take a more practical approach? But huge issues for companies right now, thinking about those jurisdictions where business travel is kind of top of the spectrum in terms of audit activity. And I think, I mean, and, and, a, and a play in on that side of mm -hmm. things between the question on the corporate, things being Absolutely. recharged and how that then affects whether it's a kind of employment tax obligation, yeah. Yeah, global mobility is not a standalone function by any means. Mm -hmm. Generally, mobility sits within corporate HR or shared services within the organization, but from a governance model, huge dependencies on finance and corporate tax, mm -hmm. really to execute these strategies that companies are putting in place on an enterprise-wide level. Yeah. I think what we're seeing here, you know, global mobility is dramatically changing, but huge competing priorities. Mm -hmm. So what we see is, you know, kind of a, a growing, dynamic, ever-increasing regulatory environment. Government, government seeing the huge opportunities for revenue here. The rules are not so easy to comply with in many jurisdictions. Immigration requirements, we know certainly from the U.S., but around the world, there's this growing trend towards nationalism. Uh, visas, work permits, harder to get. The timelines are longer, more quotas in place. The penalties for noncompliance on the immigration side, quite dramatic. Not necessarily financial penalties, but suspension of business licenses. It could even be criminal penalties in many locations. Uh, penalties for noncompliance for employment tax are generally financial, but they can be significant if you have groups or travelers going in to do a project. So not just kind of these one-offs. On the business side, they want people there quicker, sooner, faster to get the work done, and they want to pay less. So employment tax doesn't necessarily I think if your clients know, said that to us as well, haven't they? Right, yeah. So really a lot of competing priorities from the business side and the regulatory side. Yeah. And I know, Blanca, you're going to talk about this in a minute, but, uh, you know, I think the way you, when you phrased it about the sort of the 80%, I mean, I, I think um, a, a lot of, you know, folks in the sort of tax world are used to thinking about managing risk around, you know, employment around that kind of senior executive, you know, strata, mm -hmm. right? And I think what's sort of it's shocking nice. to your point is this this base of, you know, valuable workforce productive activity that's going on. And a huge amount of that. Yes. I mean, some of the studies PwC has done is how many people expect to be mobile and kind of the new generation of workers coming in, they expect to be mobile within the first two years mm -hmm. of joining the workforce. So it really changes kind of what a company is delivering to an employee, but also the policies and processes back. Yeah, excellent. Okay, well, um, the risk landscape, controls landscape is where, you know, the rub hits are, but also, Blanca, in transactions, deals, that's when people are, like, testing what's actually happening. So maybe you could kind of talk us through, you know, your experience and, and what we're seeing in the, in the M&A context. Mm -hmm. Sure. So challenges related to these mismatches between the reality of a mobile workforce model and what is the company's tech strategy and transfer pricing policy definitely becomes apparent in an M&A context. 
Experience shows, of course, that business reality is constantly evolving. And also, as Eileen just mentioned, the mobile workforce is even more mobile than ever, 80%. That's a high percentage. So the operating model today might not be the same with the operating model that was considered as a background when the transfer pricing policies were designed. This transfer pricing exposure quickly surfaces during due diligence. I have seen so many cases when we identified transfer pricing exposure during the due diligence process due to financial outcomes not being aligned to value creation. In many cases, people's roles, responsibilities, and particularly their location is not the same or is not aligned to the location that was assumed in good faith when the transfer pricing policies were put in place. To give you an example, key personnel in the location of the principal company might be uh, working remotely or frequently traveling to other jurisdictions, and this might not have been brought to the attention of the tax department. So I would say transfer pricing exposure uh, triggered by these workforce mobility issues comes up more often during the due diligence process. Buyers know it and they, they look into these issues currently as a best practice. And each time I found exposure triggered by these workforce mobility issues, I always wondered, were there risk controls in place? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. Um, and it's, it's interesting, if we look to other compliance areas and how they found their way on the diligence agenda, you know, FCPA, for example, has found itself now on the diligence agenda because of its impact. Uh, we're seeing cyber and privacy now find its way on the diligence agenda to be specifically looked at. I really firmly believe that some of the things happening with tax reform are gonna elevate some of those things to the diligence agenda, specifically from a compliance perspective and a lens around that specifically. So I, I look for the more of that to come in the diligence process and then into the post-deal integration side as well, where a lot of these processes have to come back later on. Thanks, Mike. If I follow the uh, deal life cycle, I'll move on to the deal structuring phase. Uh, here, location of key personnel, as well as their envisaged role and mobility is important to consider when formulating what is the post-deal operating model, that initial vision. It's very important to know where key people are located. And here I mean not only the C-suite or the top executives, there are many other value-creating employees within the organization. So it's important to know where are they located, do they work remotely, do they travel to other countries, and what is their responsibility and decision-making authority. Later on, uh, during the post-deal integration phase, uh, this is where we take a holistic view on all people-related issues, including the workforce mobility, uh, by looking at the HR integration plan and understanding how these key people map to the various jurisdictions and how they impact value-creating functions and consequently the transfer pricing policies. One can look here for opportunities, and we'll talk soon about value chain transformation, 
but I would say also it's important to look for exposure areas because tax audits lately ask where are key people located? Do they travel to other countries? How many days they spend in various jurisdictions? Also, do we use talent from other countries? All these aspects are important. And lately, we see not only the IRS, but also tax authorities around the world asking these questions when they try to assess or confirm substance, when they want to assess if income is properly allocated within the value chain. And lately, I would say, when they try to look at permanent establishment exposure, which is definitely the latest hot topic in trying to uh, deem more income in the source country. Uh, last but last least, I would mention that now, more than ever, it's easier to spot these issues triggered by workforce mobility. Why? Because we have radical transparency. A buyer has access to the target's master file, country-by-country country report, but also there's so much public information, such as the LinkedIn profile of executives. You can clearly see if there's a mismatch uh, between the business model and what the company is stating with respect to its tax strategy. Yeah. Erdogan, I mean, you were talking about the the data, mm -hmm. right, side of it from the, the tax authority lens. I, I, your view is, Right now, what's the relative maturity of the use and integration of the data, I would say, tax authorities versus the organizations themselves? So, I mean, you know, tax authorities are ahead of the game, you know, they're making the connection, there's a, these individuals are coming in, they're triggering this obligation, then, you know, let's have a conversation, you know, with colleagues in, you know, corporate tax, or, or is it something that you see companies are, like, harnessing the data proactively? I, I would say there's some companies that are and a lot of companies are playing catch up. So a lot of companies really thinking about, especially if they've had a situation where someone has gotten into trouble or they've had a situation in a particular location, but really trying to understand, one, who's traveling, what they're doing, what activities are they doing, and how long are they gonna be there for? And not have it be reactive, but have it be on the proactive side. So having their systems really be able to give them that data on yeah. a much more proactive basis to allow for planning, as opposed to getting a tax notice. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. or someone deported. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like more information about this topic, Please email the participants. Their email addresses can be found in the description of this episode. Thank you.